Welcome back, everybody, to the Resource Roadmap Show. This is where we get to spend the next hour talking about all of the new resources that were just added to the Therapy Insights Access Pass Library. I'm your host. My name is Megan Berg. I'm the founder of Therapy Insights and an SLP based in Western Montana. And we have our two writers with us here today. We have Jennifer Ledger, who's based in South Carolina, and she works mostly in acute inpatient rehab and LTAC. Hi, Jennifer. Hey, everybody. And we have Stephanie Hennigan with us based in Minnesota. She's also at a level one trauma center and spends most of her time in outpatient therapy. Hi, Stephanie. Hi, everyone. And I know you just got back from an amazing CEU experience. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Just because I know we're all always looking for those diamonds in the CEU. Yeah, I was really excited to be a part of ASHA's inaugural healthcare summit. Um, It was actually hosted in Rochester, Minnesota with the Mayo Clinic team. So um, since I'm in St. Paul, I do see the names of the Mayo Clinic speech pathologists a lot. Um, And Dr. Duffy was there too, which was great. Um, But it was just such a great learning day. It was all about motor speech disorders. And I learned a lot more about functional speech disorders, which personally I've had a handful of patients with. And it's good to just learn more about that and know that there are some very great techniques to learn and use. So um, yeah, the, the whole course was very, very um, informative, and it was nice to collaborate. Awesome. Excellent. Thank you. Um, So if you are an Access Pass member, you will have instant access to all of the resources that we're talking about today. And if you're not a member yet, you can sign up at therapyinsights.com. And we do offer CEUs for listening to or watching this show. You can just go onto our website and find this show and answer a couple questions And you just have to have the CEU feature included in your Access Pass membership to get that credit. Um, And because we're offering this for CEUs, we do want to verbalize our disclosures, which are that all of us are being paid by Therapy Insights to prepare and present this show. And we are talking about Therapy Insights products. So I'm excited to dive in. We're talking about lots of different things today from vision related to occipital lobe strokes, cough strength, um, hitting on attention some more. Um, And then also talking about feeding and dementia. So I'm going to share my screen so those of you watching can see the resources that we're talking about. And the first resource we have is called Cough. Is it strong enough? It's a one-page resource um, that has a visual of a person coughing and talks about the mechanisms that can reduce peak expiratory flow rate. So Jennifer, I'll let you tell us a little bit more about this. Yes. So um, I kind of feel like cough strength is a topic that I hear being talked about more and more kind of amongst the medical speech pathologies, speech pathologist. Um, And I'm definitely incorporating more tools in my job to kind of objectively measure cough strength and also target cough strength. So um, cough is definitely a more complex function than we may think. So it requires intact neuromuscular activity, coordinated use of an open and optimal airway. Um, it requires strong respiratory muscles and an adequate opening and closing of the glottis. Um, and we can kind of think about cough in two different ways. We can think of it as reflexive, which is mediated by the brainstem or we can think of it as volitional or irritant induced, which is mediated by the cerebral cortex. So the medical terminology for weakened or absent cough is called hypotessia. Um, And this can obviously lead to increased risk of aspiration and respiratory infections due to the reduced protection of the airway. Um, So with this uh, handout, it kind of talks about cough strength measured by peak expiratory flow rate, um, and that's measured in liters per minute and can be measured by a peak flow meter. So for those of you who are watching, I'll kind of show you this here. Um, This is a peak flow meter that we use um, at my job. And so I'll talk a little bit more about this and kind of what these numbers mean here. Um, So this device kind of measures how well a person is able to forcefully push air out of their lungs. Um, And the peak expiratory flow rate can kind of help us determine if a person is going to be able to successfully be extubated or decannulated, um, just kind of based on the numbers. So 
For example, if somebody has greater than 60 liters per minute at the level of the endotracheal tube, then that is shown to predict ses successful extubation. Um, if somebody has you know, greater than 160 liters per minute at the level of the mouth, then that is shown to predict successful decannulation. Um, and then just kind of another number to keep in mind. So if somebody has less than 270 liters per minute, this is associated with increased secretion retention and also risk of infection because of that. So those have just been kind of some numbers that have been helpful to me to keep in mind, especially when I'm working at our long-term acute care hospital with um, our patients who, you know, primarily have trachs and are on ventilators. Um, it's helped me to kind of understand, you know, when it when they are ready to be decannulated to have that conversation with the pulmonologist and with the respiratory therapist to determine, you know, um, if they're ready, as well as just kind of those individuals who are ready to be discharged and thinking about um, decannulation. So I'll kind of go over an example of that in just a minute. So um, I'm just going to bring this up a little bit larger. So I'm just going to quickly go over some mechanisms that cause reduced peak expiratory flow rate. So um, that can include reduced inspiratory muscle strength. So in general, you want to think of inspiration prior to coughing. Coughing reaches 80 to 90% of the vital capacity of the lungs. Um, the minimum volume required for the generation of an effective cough is estimated to be in the range of 50% of the vital capacity of the lungs. Um, other things that can kind of cause reduced peak expiratory flow rate include, you know, reduced expiratory muscle strength, reduced ability to open and close that glottis, as I, you know, have already said, airway obstruction, restrictive lung disease, older age, and also just kind of reduced activity. Um, so I kind of wanted to talk about one of the, a patient that I currently have right now. Um, it's a female. She's in her 70s. Um, she has a history of paraplegia, but that's not why she's currently hospitalized. Um, but just thinking about how those abdominal muscles can be affected, um, you know, for cough strength because of that history. She has had a trach five times um, and she was decannulated right before this current readmission to the hospital. Um, and during her current hospitalization, hospitalization, she has had acute respiratory failure again. She was intubated. She had a tracheostomy. Um, she's currently stable. She's tolerating room air. Her trach is capped. Um, she's pretty much ready to be discharged from the hospital, um, but kind of her only barrier right now is that she is now on hemodialysis. And to receive an outpatient spot for hemodialysis, you have to be stable. They don't really like to take trachs, but if you do have one, they have to typically be capped. Um, you can't have, you know, you don't, you don't have the opportunity to, you know, be sectioned if you need that. Um, and so that's really kind of her barrier right now is because she has a very weak cough and, you know, they obviously the pulmonologist does not really want to decannulate with her with how many times she has had a trach already. Um, and so she's still needing to be sectioned, you know, maybe one to two times a day, which isn't a lot, but we still have to keep that in mind as to how that can affect her, you know, potentially receiving that outpatient dialysis spot. And so, um, we've used the peak flow meter to kind of get a baseline objective measure as to, you know, what her uh, peak expiratory flow rate is. And so this meter or um, this meter here, it actually starts at 60 liters per minute. And so she was unable to even move the meter on this when we kind of originally started. And so we've been working a lot on respiratory muscle strength, um, diaphragmatic breathing and those kinds of things. And so um, this week she was actually able to get to hundred liters per minute on here. So again, she's still, you know, hundred meters is, or hundred liters per minute is still indicative of a weak cough um, and kind of secretion retention, but it's just given us, you know, that objective, objective measure, which is really helpful um, when treating these types of patients. So it's been, you know, something that I've really started to use a lot more in my practice. Yeah, that's great to have the objective data 
Because I think we've all stood there and watched people cough and been like, well, that we know it's weak or it sounds weak, (laughs) but you know, can we, what does that mean? Yeah. So so it's great to have that number. I have a question. So does each patient get one of those in the hospital or is there a way to clean that between patients? No. So we, this is one per patient. Um, and no, not, we've just started ordering these in our speech therapy department. Um, and we don't give them to every single patient. We just kind of give them to the ones that we know kind of have a weaker cough. And that's what we're working on. Um, that's kind of what we've started to do, but it's still a work in process. I'm still learning a lot about cough strength and, you know, how to measure and target it too. So I just, you know, something new that I've started to use in my practice and it has been helpful, I feel like. Yeah, I mean, yes. I think that's one of the reasons why maybe I'm not using it is because my facility just doesn't purchase them. I guess that would probably be the speech therapy department. Um, mm-hmm. I just usually go off of what respiratory therapy gives me for information, but um, that's good to have more objective data. Yeah, and I'm honestly not sure how much these cost. I, I feel like they're fairly inexpensive, um, there's many different ones out there. If you kind of search a peak flow meter, um, I might try to look that up while, while you're talking next. Yeah. And I was going to say, this is a great handout to share with any decision makers in your facility, or you're trying to provide context and justification for why this would be helpful. And then I know Jennifer, or sorry, Stephanie, if you want to guide us through the article snapshot you wrote that ties into this topic, that would be a good resource to share as well. Yeah. So I um, got found this uh, article or maybe Jennifer shared it with me, um, but the use of cough peak flow in the assessment of respiratory function in clinical practice with the narrative literature review by Brenna and their team. Um, so cough peak, peak flow measures the maximum expiratory flow that occurs during a cough or when that sudden opening of the glottis. Um, So kind of like Jennifer was talking about, um, kind of the thresholds for when maybe it's appropriate for someone to be decannulated. Um, This gives us some healthy adult cough peak flow numbers, and they're saying a normal range is between 360 and 400 liters per minute. And for the gold standard, respiratory therapy would use a pneumotechograph Um, But however, spirometers and peak flow meters are often the most commonly used because they're portable, easy to use, cost-effective, and they can reproduce those results pretty well. Um, One that the article pointed out was the mini right peak flow meter, which was most common. Uh, For people with Parkinson's disease, the motor component of coughing is typically impaired in those earlier stages. And in the advanced stages, the cough's motor and sensory components are impaired, meaning that people with Parkinson's may not be able to, in the early stage, really feel the need of when or have that function of a strong cough. And then in the later stage stages, they may not have the motor function for a strong cough, but they also may not have that sensation of when they need to cough. So having more concerns of maybe aspiration um, occurring. The cough will fail if there's any sluggishness of closing or opening of one or both of those vocal cords or vocal folds um, because of that unilateral or bilateral weakness. Um, Also having a weaker diaphragm muscles will not allow for that forcible expiration of air that's needed for a strong cough. Um, So I've just found this was really helpful, especially kind of that tidbit for Parkinson's disease, since I'm a part of our Parkinson clinic as well. I can practice if you guys want to see if I'm in that healthy, normal range. Yeah, I would love that. um, Like I said, this is one device per patient. I did just look it up. It's about $21 that you can get it for. So maybe even if your facility wouldn't pay for something like this, this might be something that the patient would be willing to pay for if this is something that they're working on. Um, I typically kind of give the instruction to blow through it like a whistle and to forcefully push the air out kind of as hard as you can. So 
All right, so I got about 420. You are exceptional. <laughs> that is a fact. We're not worried about you at all, but thanks for demonstrating. Good. Are there any apps yet? That would be hard to do, I guess. So this device actually has its own app for tracking. Oh, oh you can track with it. I'm That's just wondering if fancy. you can like blow into a phone and it'll give you something, but it's probably not the same. There's too many, there's too many variables when there's an air gap between what you're blowing into mm -hmm. you and the mouth. I bet it will be there someday. Yes. Yeah. Cool. All right. Okay, the next piece is a one-page handout called The Five Components of Dysarthria. And it has kind of a an abstract anatomy drawing of the head and neck and chest and points out um, each of the five areas of dysarthria. So Stephanie, I'll let you talk about this resource. Yeah, this has been a dream resource for me. And I'm honestly kind of surprised it's taken this long for us to make this one. Um, and this especially is very complementary to the motor speech disorder course that I just took over the weekend. So this handout is meant to just kind of be more of that educational guide for patients and family members, or maybe even some OTs or PTs or some other medical professionals who aren't quite as aware of dysarthria and how it breaks down. Um, so I know I do talk about this with my patients, and I usually have, like draw this super bad drawing, but now I don't have to. And just kind of pointing out that dysarthria is made up of five components. As we know, it's the resp respiration, the phonation, articulation, residence, and prosody. And this just does a very simple but complete job, I would say, of just kind of explaining those five components and really helping you to talk to your patient and their family one-on-one -on -one and really kind of explaining, okay, maybe the respiration is an area that's really weak for that person and that adding in is actually affecting everything else. So because you don't have a strong respiration, your phonation's not gonna be weak, articulation's gonna be hard and, and whatnot. So I know I will be using this handout as soon as I can with my patients. Um, because motor speech disorders is kind of a complicated thing for people who aren't speech therapists who studied it. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. And I pulled out, there is a clinic card with this graphic on it. So for anybody who likes using the clinic cards, uh, they tend to be just a little more basic than the handouts. So if you don't want the distraction of all of the text on the handout, you can use this and then you can sit down together and label it together um, and draw on it and do whatever you want to. But yeah, so I is love that this. Something, is that something people order from the store? Yeah. Okay. Thank you. I would say the visual is my favorite. Yeah, yeah, me too. I love this visual. Yeah, and it's great because there are so many different pieces to dysarthria. And I think when you can break it down into its individual components and then talk about how you're addressing each of those components within therapy or even have individual goals for each component, um, that can be helpful for documenting progress and helping people see progress because sometimes yeah. that's slow and hard to notice for the person. And you're right. It can also even help them understand why this speech task is so complicated because there's five components that are involved that most of the time people don't consider. Right. Right. Thank you. Okay. We touched on attention last month and we're going to be talking about it briefly this month with models of attention. Um, and so this is a one page handout that breaks down the different components and I'll let Jennifer tell us all about it. Yeah, so um, this was requested by one of our subscribers, and we do have another um, resource available that talks about different types of attention, but Solberg and Matier updated their original model of attention in 2010 um, with their attention process training program that was created for individuals with acquired brain injuries. And so this handout is kind of based on their updates and describes the following clinical framework for attention. 
So I'm just going to kind of read through each type of attention or each subcomponent of attention for those that are listening. Um, so the first is just basic sustained attention. And so this is the ability to maintain attention during continuous and repetitive activities. This includes persistence, task consistency, and vigilance. So for example, following a brain injury, a person may demonstrate short attention spans or kind of lose concentration over time. Um, and so this is kind of an example of an impairment in that basic sustained attention. Another subcomponent of attention is executive control, specifically working memory. Um, and working memory um, is the process used required for holding onto and manipulating information in one's head. It allows for a person to hold on to information temporarily and to integrate it with existing information and then store it into memory. It also allows a person to retrieve information from long-term memory and use. So following a brain injury, a person may have difficulty completing mental calculations or remembering a password. And that can be kind of an example of an impairment in working memory. Um, the next subcomponent is selective attention. And this is the ability to selectively process target information while inhibiting responses to non-target information. Um, the ability to maintain a behavioral set in the presence of distractors or other competing stimuli. And so following a brain injury, a person's attention may be negatively affected by internal distractions. So we think about kind of emotions, pain, um, worrisome thoughts, or external distractors as well. Um, you know, noise, um, too much light, not enough light, those different things. The next subcomponent of attention is suppression, and that's the ability to control impulsive responding. It's related to both selective attention and working memory. And so following a brain injury, a person may present with disinhibition or impulsivity. And that's kind of an example of that impairment and suppression. And then the last subcomponent is alternating attention. And this is the ability to shift one focus of attention. Um, the capacity for mental flexibility allows a person to switch attention between activities or tasks that demand different behavioral responses or sets. And so again, following a brain injury, a person may have difficulty initiating a task after they have been engaged in an alternate activity or continuing to perform um, according to the same parameters as the previous task after they were supposed to shift to a new task. Um, persons may also show perseveration, rigid and flexible thinking, slow processing, or poor working memory with impairments and alternating attention. And so this handout, I feel like, is good, um, you know, for education for the speech pathologists as well as for the patient and their caregivers. Um, it's, you know, really important for our patients to know what we're working on and why we're working on certain activities and what it's truly targeting um, for them to be kind of invested in what they're doing. And so I think it's always good to, you know, you know, provide that education at the beginning. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we talked last month about sort of what works when targeting attention and what doesn't work. And the evidence base for that is morphing as we speak. And I think we're moving more and more towards this therapy approach where we're using metacognitive strategies, trying to become more aware of the challenges. And then how can we, you know, put together some compensatory strategies to hold on to more attention, even though we have a brain injury. So I think this is a great handout because we can talk about like, Hey, like you're not at the level where your basic sustained attention is impaired. We're, we're really working specifically on alternating your attention between two different things. Um, and so they can see some of the strengths they have and that it's not just kind of the blanket term of attention, because I think when people hear that or patients hear that, it's like, we're working on attention. Maybe it feels a little bit demoralizing or like, like I'm paying attention to you. Like, I don't know yeah. what you're saying. I have that skill, but breaking it down for them even further to help them understand the specific attention skill set that we're targeting is important. I think it's interesting too, how like even under like alternating attention, it has the examples of the perseveration and the rigid and flexible thinking. So I don't even normally feel like I always think about those things as like an alternating attention impairment, but just kind of Again, realizing how all of this is connected and it's hard. You can't tease things apart. 
So question, I know in outpatient, I get a lot of questions from patients who their chief complaint is, I can't multitask anymore. And so I, I guess I bring up this idea of alternating attention because, you know, truly can any of us multitask or are we just shifting our attention quickly between tasks, and, right? Yeah, I feel like that's a, definitely a big topic that you hear and that why divided attention is not listed on this handout because that is kind of a, a topic that's being brought up that can we truly multitask or divide our attention mm -hmm. between two different things? Or like you said, is it truly just shifting your attention back and forth? So that's a good yeah. point. Up. I, I, it's always this kind of internal debate I have because mm -hmm. we can't really multitask. So what, what do we identify it as? That's interesting. So I guess divided attention would be that I'm working and watching my one-year-old at the same time time which I don't think is possible yeah I guess I would I consider alternating between taking care of a one-year-old and working I can alternate but yeah. I can't do them both at the same time there's which maybe like some debate for some more simple tasks like listening to music while you're cooking you know doing something like that might be a little bit easier than yeah when you're thinking about something that the example that you provided yeah, you're really just kind of, yeah, switching that attention. A good discussion to have in the future. Yeah, I'd be curious if any of the listeners have any input on this too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I bet driving would be a big topic of conversation around alternating attention. Because that's yeah. another one where you're... <laughs> you're having to shift back and forth. Like if you're having a conversation and looking at the road, you're constantly alternating. Yeah, I was doing that driving back from Rochester. I was trying to listen to the three of us kind of talking about what we learned, but also trying to drive. It was, yeah. it was an attention task for sure. Which is why they don't let young drivers have more than a few people in the car with them. There you go. All right. Thank you, Jennifer. Okay, we're going to switch to talking about environmental considerations for people with dementia while they're eating and drinking. And this is a one-page handout um, that basically has a list of bullet points for different strategies to improve the environment for a better swallowing experience for people with dementia. Stephanie, tell us about this resource. Yes, I was thinking about this resource because I do see a lot of people with dementia and outpatient. And oftentimes I'm, I'm talking about these things with their themselves and the patient's families, but never really had it written down. So the following are just some ideas for improving the environment for a better swallowing experience for people with dementia. So we kind of talk about, I'll go through these bullet points. So the first bullet point was meal choices. So making sure if the person can communicate a choice, having that caregiver try and give them a choice. So that could be either two options of what they might like to decide about the meal or just even deciding what they like to drink. Um, the next bullet point is talking about reducing distractions. So really trying to have that quiet place for a meal um, because swallowing at this point can be more complicated and needs more attention like we had just been talking about. Um, so turning off those televisions or trying to have family members wait um, to have conversations until after the meal. Um, positioning is important. I've heard a lot of, of my, my personal patients talk about they eat sitting in the living room. Um, and sometimes that trunk core strength is kind of difficult. So they might be leaning back while they're eating. So being maybe at a table, a sturdy chair, 90 degree angle could be the best position for that patient. Um, but also maybe talking with PT and OT and see if they have any insight if that patient is shared um, to give more positioning ideas. Um, time, making sure that person is fully alert and awake. And maybe realizing that meal times could be flexible. So it may not be eight, noon, five, and really just more gearing that towards the person and when they're feeling awake. Um, so, because with dementia, sometimes that concept of time just doesn't exist in, in, the, in the aspect that we know it. Um, another one I thought was interesting is 
putting fluid first. So trying to encourage that person to take a drink of liquid first to kind of help moisten up the mouth and the throat um, to kind of get it ready for eating a meal. Because as we know, xerostomia or dry mouth is common for older adults, whether that's because of medication side effects or other kind of medical complications. Um, talking about there's other some ideas for silverware or cups. Um, so kind of looking into those could talk to occupational therapy too. needed some specific ideas. And then just kind of the general ones that we talk about with speech therapy. So um, making sure the person's eating slow, um, alternating foods and liquids to really help kind of that flushing action. Um, trying to make sure that the person kind of stays upright for about 20 to 30 minutes after a meal. So they don't go lay back down in bed right away. And then just really um, stressing the importance of oral cares and making sure that the person either gets cues or help with brushing their teeth after a meal um, to kind of reduce any level of bacteria or the risk of pneumonia. Great. Yeah, I think this is a great list of strategies for people to try and see what works for them and and it's going to be different for everybody. Yeah, I think so, so often family members or care partners just want to learn and do the best that they can. And I think this handout's a great starting conversation um, for the speech therapist and the patient and their care partner um, to get creative. Absolutely. And Steph, I know you also wrote um, an article snapshot related to dysphagia management and kind of shifting towards a more culturally responsive care approach. Um, and some of, the, some of the recommendations from this article may or may not be able to be applied to the dementia population. I think this is more of an overall um, dysphagia population approach that yes. we can talk about. Absolutely. Um, tell us more about this snapshot. Sure, so this snapshot is called Using Backward Design in Dysphagia Management a paradigm shift towards more culturally responsive care. And I'm gonna butcher this name, but Ambrosio and their team worked on this one. So I really found this article fascinating and I guess I didn't realize until afterwards that this is maybe how I personally approach swallowing and outpatient care. So this backward design for dysphagia management incorporates the patient's culture and values for their quality of life to guide the treatment. So the speech therapist can use motivational interview questions. So such as how does your swallowing problem impact your life to learn about how the patient is experiencing their swallow. Ethnographic interviewing questions such as tell me about your typical experience with mealtime before your stroke. And then how has mealtimes been changed now since your stroke? And that's going to allow the speech language pathologist to learn about the patient's culture and values related to eating and swallowing. So the goal attainment scale can be used um, to kind of create those shared goals with the patient and their care partner and the speech therapist. And it's a way that we can measure progress and that personalization for the patient's goals. And when dysphagia management does consider the patient's goals and culture, the patient has a better patient-centered healthcare and outcome. So in my practice, I do a lot of the modified bearing swallow studies, and I ask a lot of these questions without before I had even read this, this article. And it just really, in outpatient, you know, they're they're less acute, they're probably already if they're aspirating, their body may able to kind of take care of it um, if they're not really having a lot of illness. So really just kind of looking at these big questions of how is this impacting you? What changes could we make that it would still kind of fit into your daily lifestyle? It wouldn't make you feel like socially isolated or it won't make you change your feelings about eating and swallowing. Um, so it really is patient specific on this one, but um, sometimes we, we might talk about if the patient maybe does want to kind of try thicken liquids, maybe they have them in the evening time, maybe when they're more tired, 
and, and maybe thinner liquids in the morning. So just kind of these little things that we could just see if it helps um, that patient. And you know what, it's, it's their body, it's their quality of life. So I always say, I'm just here to give you education and ideas to make the, the best choice that you can for your body. And it, it may change in the future. So then we'll just revisit this too, or it could get better. So that's how yeah. I personally approached it. Great. Yeah, and I think this is part of the movement of moving away from being the diet police. I think it's great that SLPs make recommendations, and I think recommendations are an important part of documentation and developing treatment plans. And of course, we want to offer our insight and experience to patients and you know, give them considerations that we think are valid to think about. But I think the pendulum has swung perhaps a little too far in the control direction where I see a lot of speech therapists just get frustrated that a patient is not doing what they're told um, or following the recommendations. They're not complying. I mean, I always think like if I or when I'm a patient and somebody does the bedside swallow or clinical swallow exam or a video study with me. Like I'm going to be a nightmare for them because like <laughs> I don't eat meat. I don't eat dairy products. I would never touch a sandwich with <laughs> like the typical sandwich that you must be presented with at the, with the MBSS. And if somebody walked in my room and wanted me to eat a yogurt and like graham crackers, I just wouldn't do it. So I think you have to like consider that every single person has their own very unique relationship with food. And that unique relationship is vitally important in any conversation we're having about swallowing and eating. And it's, it has to be the first part of the piece in our treatment approach. So thanks for Absolutely. Doing the article snapshot. And I think it's a great conversation. Mm -hmm. All right. The next resource we're going to talk about is impairments of occipital lobe strokes. This is a one-page handout that talks about different visual impairments that people with occipital lobe strokes might, might experience. And what I like about this handout is that there are three visual examples of how that person might be, or like how we would perceive that visual impairment. So Jennifer, I'll let you tell us more about this resource. Yeah, so this resource is pretty straightforward, like the last one. Um, like Megan said, it just talks about different impairments of occipital lobe strokes. So just kind of a background about occipital lobe strokes. Um, you know, the occipital lobe processes visual input from the eyes, and a stroke occurring in this part of the brain is actually pretty rare due to the safety mechanism for blood flow called the circle of Willis. So the circle of Willis um, are arteries in the brain that are connected in the circle and allow for blood to flow backward and forward to compensate for blockages or other damage. Um, and I would agree. I feel like I, I don't see strokes in this area of the brain very often, um, at least where I work. Um, but it's important to know that this can still happen. There can still be strokes. There can still be traumatic brain injuries in this area of the brain. Um, and so the, I'm just going to kind of go over different functional impairments that may be observed related to a person's vision. So the first one is alexia without agraphia. So alexia is the inability to read or understand written words. Agraphia is the ability to communicate through written expression. So a person with an occipital lobe lesion may not be able to read or understand written words, but can still communicate by writing. How crazy does that kind of sound? Um, so this is due to an impairment in the process in processing visual input, not an actual language impairment. Um, another functional impairment related to occipital lobe strokes is something called central vision loss. And what this is, is a person with an occipital lobe lesion may have loss of vision in the center of their visual field. And this is kind of one of the um, examples that we have on this handout. Another functional impairment is cortical blindness. A person with an occipital lobe lesion may lose all vision due to the visual processing abilities of the brain being damaged severely. So I'll talk a little bit more about cortical blindness in a minute with a few um, patients I've had recently. 
Um, the next functional impairment that you may see with an occipital lobe stroke is homonymous hemianopsia. And so a person with this may lose vision on the opposite side of the visual field from their lesion. Um, this is important um, to know because you might also hear it as a visual field cut, but it is different from neglect where that is actually an attention impairment. So you might hear like left neglect or left visual field cut and just knowing that those two things are different from one another. All right, let me try to say this next one. So the next functional impairment, osopagnosia. Um, and this is a temporal occipital lobe lesion where a person may not be able to recognize familiar faces. And oftentimes a person can still recognize familiar people by their voices though. Um, this is also kind of known as facial blindness. Another functional impairment is visual agnosia. And a person with this may not be able to identify familiar objects by sight. Um, maybe they are still able to kind of identify objects by touch, um, kind of using some other senses to help with that. And then the last functional impairment is visual hallucination. So less common than other impairments, um, a person with this may have vivid hallucinations such as colorful pinwheels, lights, sparks, and other things. And this is also kind of one of the examples that is shown on this handout. So I wanted to talk, you know, kind of my inspiration for making this handout came from two patients that I've had recently um, at the long-term acute care hospital. And so they've been very challenging to treat. Um, they both had cortical blindness because we're not able to use kind of the traditional tools such as external aids for memory management. Um, one of these patients also has receptive aphasia or language impairment. And so, you know, they're not able to see gestures or key written words. Again, things that we typically might use to treat these other impairments. And so, you know, these patients have been, you know, a very big challenge for me in trying to figure out what does help them. Um, just kind of background on both of these patients. They both kind of survived multifocal or occipital strokes. Um, and interestingly enough, so one of them was following cardiac arrest um, and another one was far following an aortic injury due to a car accident. And so it's just kind of interesting to see they both kind of started with the heart and then ended up having a stroke um, and both ended up with that cortical blindness. But I just wanted to, you know, have better information about the different types of impairments that you might see to kind of tease some different things apart. Um, you know, I definitely have seen the cortical blindness in my practice. I've seen the, you know, visual field cut, um, vis visual hallucinations. I've had patients that have had those, um, and definitely alexia and agraphia. What about you two? Have you had any patients with any of these functional impairments? I have. I was actually just looking it up because I remembered um, Brad Pitt came out and he disclosed that he has prosopagnosia, that facial blindness. And mm -hmm. I just Googled it to double check that I didn't just make that up. Um, but I thought that was interesting to kind of see a, a celebrity kind of come out and disclose that. Yeah. And I worked with someone with Alexia and it wasn't like there were some treatments that had been started as far as like creating a memory book and writing things down and then like it slowly became because he was so good at overcompensating and like kind of you couldn't really tell that he had Alexia but then mm -hmm. we figured out that he couldn't actually read his memory book <laughs> and so mm -hmm. then we completely shifted and started working on phonemic awareness but I think what's interesting too is like especially when people have any kind of aphasia and you're trying to use tool like visual tools to help with mm -hmm. communication this is a really helpful handout to try to figure out like what might be going on with their vision because you can't always ask questions to figure out what they're seeing or not seeing yes. you might and, not be able to share that yeah as I was gonna say with these patients I've definitely um, talked with my occupational therapist a lot just because they are typically the ones that kind of assess vision a little bit more and so they've been able to kind of brainstorm with me on different things that we can try. Yep, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yes. 
All right. Okay, so we're going to move on to our case study. This is the last part of our show, and this is a chance for us to talk about different clinical approaches and perspectives um, with different case studies. So this month we're talking about Joe. Joe is a 72-year-old male with COPD, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, who is frequently readmitted to the hospital due to what the doctor refers to as, quote, non-compliance with medications. You note that while Joe doesn't have a neurological diagnosis, the OT shares with the team that he scored a 19 out of 30 on the MOCA, and it's unclear if he is non-compliant or simply unable to manage his medications successfully at home. Joe isn't currently on your caseload. So the question is, what would you do? What resources would you put in place um, to address Joe's situation? Stephanie, what do you think? You want to start us off? So first, I would reach out to my neurology team, and I'm spoiled in the fact that they're on the third floor and I'm on the first floor, and I know them very well. And so I would maybe bring this up to them and say, hey, just so you're aware, this patient is you're seeing OT, right? But not speech. Is that the case? Okay. And just kind of saying the OT is kind of telling me that they're scoring a 19 out of 30 on this MOCA. This could be something that maybe we need to dig a little deeper in as a team. Um, I know not a lot of people can go up in that sense of like going out and seeking out the neurologist and saying that this really needs to be addressed. Um, But again, I'm not afraid to do that. But then probably getting an order to get this person on the caseload. And one thing I would kind of look at is more memory aids and memory strategies um, for medication. So I don't, I don't really know Joe if he lives alone or if he has family or friends that help him, but maybe with his permission, kind of including them in that evaluation and talking about some strategies. So if maybe he lives alone, maybe like that pillpack.com where he could get his medications in those little baggies. If he's not really tech savvy, probably not like an app or something like that. Um, maybe medication boxes if he's really kind of wanting to start more simple and then help him kind of set up recurring reminders. Um, there's a lot of things, a lot of questions I have though still, but. I think that would be a good starting point. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of unknowns in this case study. And I think, and and it depends on your facility. Like you're saying, you're really, you have um, pretty good access to your neurology team and not everybody has that. Not every facility sits and has interdisciplinary meetings. So it might not even come about that you may like just happen to hear that the OT did a MOCA and they scored low and you're kind of picking up on these different details about this person, but they're not on your caseload. I mean, that may or may not happen depending on where you work, but yeah, I think that's a good place to start. What about you, Jennifer? Uh, That was, I was having a really hard time picking a good um, resource for this one. I felt like I could go in kind of different directions. So I feel like this is a little bit random, but um, so this is a handout about acquired brain injury. So specifically related to this case, I'm looking at kind of that loss of oxygen oxygen, um, on here to anoxic brain injury, but more thinking of a hypoxic brain injury with somebody who has COPD. So I know that it was mentioned that this person doesn't have a history or at least a documented history of any neurological um, damage. Um, And so just kind of thinking about, well, if they don't, what are some other reasons that this person may be having some difficulty with memory or organization or just kind of those activities of daily living? So, you know, this, this handout goes over just kind of what an anoxic or hypoxic brain injury is kind of that reduced um, oxygen in the blood flow. So COPD can cause kind of reduced oxygen saturations, um, oxygen saturation levels or hypoxia as we call it, um, and hypoxic tissue injuries or an injury resulting to your tissues due to not getting enough oxygen rich blood can happen when somebody's oxygen saturations are less than 90%. And so, Um, we want to 
you know, make this aware to the person that has COPD if they're not aware of how kind of those low oxygen levels or COPD exacerbations can affect cognition and affect kind of the tissues um, in the body. And so I think it's really important for them to understand that too, and just how that diagnosis of COPD can lead to neurological changes as well. If it isn't, you know, if their oxygen isn't monitored well, um, and they're not kind of watching out for those times where it does kind of dip lower, or they may need some supplemental oxygen. So I think um, it's really important just to kind of give them that background education as well. And I'm going to say I use this handout as well as another one that we have to kind of talk about this. So this is actually an OT handout that was created, and it's called The Dangers of Hypoxemia or Low Oxygen. And it has some really good information on there, too. So if you're interested, definitely check that one out as well. And I also kind of like to piggyback on that and explain to patients that the hippocampus, the memory center, is very sensitive to any changes in oxygen level. And so that is the first one to get damaged, and it doesn't take much much time. I think it's only like minutes without oxygen, and it causes damage. So um, that's kind of where I go with that, too. And then... So last month we talked about the Apple watch and I was looking at the Apple watches and the new version has basically a, an oximeter on it. Am I it wrong? Does, yeah, no, it does. It's, it's kind of main, mainly for like, you know, people who go camping in high altitudes where they, they might have less oxygen, but it still will tell you if your oxygen level has dropped. That's cool. Mm-hmm. Maybe talking to him about monitoring his own levels if he's able to. Yeah. yeah. Um, did you have either of you have any other thoughts before I share mine? Um, you went for an oldie but a goodie. Oldie but a goodie. It is old. 1992. Yes. This is an article called Patient Noncompliance, Deviance or Reasoned Decision Making. And it is an older article, although I feel like a lot of these types of articles have been kind of sprinkled into the, the publication since the 1970s. And it's this ongoing conversation of trying to shift things away from this traditional medical model. And so I just, I want to read the abstract really briefly just to get, give you a sense of what this article is about. And this article is available for free online. So if you work in a facility or on a team where you share articles with each other, this would be a good one to share. Um, so the abstract is a large quantity of research concerning issues of patient compliance with medications has been produced in recent years. The assumption in much of this work is that patients have little option but to comply with the advice and instructions they receive. Studies have shown, however, that between one-third and one-half of all patients are non-compliant, but different authors cite different reasons for this high level of non-compliance. In this paper, the concept of compliance is questioned. It is shown to be a largely irrelevant, it is shown to be largely irre irrelevant to patients who carry out a cost-benefit analysis of each treatment, weighing up the costs and risks of each treatment against the benefits as they perceive them their perceptions and the personal and social circumstances within which they live are shown to be crucial to their decision-making. Thus, an apparently irrational act of non-compliance from the doctor's point of view may be a very rational action when seen from the patient's point of view. The solution to the waste of resources inherent in non-compliance lies not in attempting to increase patient compliance per se, but in the development of more open, cooperative doctor-patient relationships. So as we've been saying, like this is a case where there's a lot of unanswered questions, a lot of unknowns. Is this a cognitive impairment? Is this a personal choice? Is it a situation where he cannot afford the medications? He cannot get to a pharmacy to get the medications. He doesn't think the medications do anything. He's somebody who is, his body is sensitive to medications. He's maybe his whole life, he's tried to avoid taking medications. Maybe he feels healthier when he doesn't take them. Maybe there's side effects that people aren't hearing or taking seriously. Um, so I think 
there's so many things to look at here. Like maybe the OT could address any cognitive impairments or medication management issues or access issues. Um, maybe if you have a relationship with the doctor, that this is a conversation that you could start with them and start with your team. Because I think, um, you know, hospital readmissions are enormously costly. And I think it's frustrating for everybody involved because I think there's a lot of like throwing hands up in the air and be like, you know, what do they expect us to do? And they're just not doing what we tell them to do. And I think it just comes down to relationships and really seeing the individual person and um, getting rid of that phrase noncompliant and moving in a direction where we are holistically trying to address the situation. So that's one resource that I would use. And then this is a free resource. You can find this on the Therapy Insights website under free downloads. And it's a brief comparison of medical models. And I think when we're comparing the traditional medical model to the social model, one of the biggest differences is the central focus. So in the traditional medical model, the focus is the diagnosis, in this case, the COPD, whereas in the social medical model, the, the central focus is the person. And I think ultimately that has to be the conversation that's had across the interdisciplinary team with this case study, um, because we need to be focusing more on the person and less on the diagnosis. But I think that's a hard thing for everybody to wrap their minds around when medication is such a simple and effective solution to the problem. Um, but obviously the problem is compounded because the person is not taking the medication. So there's more deeper underlying issues that we have to solve than just making sure they get the medication in their body. So yeah, any other thoughts about the case study? I guess I was just kind of sitting here thinking about, you know, me, Stephanie, when I was like a brand new grad student, right? Like I graduated and I'm my own speech pathologist. And, you know, you think about all we learn about is the diagnosis and treatment, diagnosis and treatment, and maybe schools have changed since then. But I just didn't have the, the confidence as a new grad to really kind of, I guess, just be okay with looking at the person and, and, you know, you focus so much on the diagnosis. So I think, you know, I'm, I've almost been a speech pathologist for nine years now, and it's, it's amazing to see kind of how my experience and how my training and my, my shift, it really has gone to the person now, but I also just, I know it's overwhelming for new grad students. And so I, I guess I'm trying to say like, it's, it's okay you're doing the best you can with the limited experience you have as a speech pathologist and you'll get there. So even if you just kind of take moments to try and identify the person, but I know that, you know, in school and in your practicums, you're ingrained, like, what's the diagnosis? Like thinking about that. So I was just kind of doing some reflecting over here as you were reading that article, but I don't know, do you guys have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I'm glad I definitely think, but yeah, go ahead, Jennifer. I just say I agree. I definitely think it just takes time and experience to get there, to kind of get that clinical judgment, to go along with kind of that diagnosis and treatment um, component, and also kind of bringing in that person centered care. Yeah. yeah, and I think for any new grads listening or newer clinicians, there's there's a lot of push to, to use like standardized assessment. So in this case, it would be totally legitimate to look at Joe and be like, we need to do a standardized cognitive assessment to figure out if this is a cognitive issue or not. And that's a totally reasonable path to take. I think another totally reasonable path to take is to have a conversation. And I, I think that's something that I want to be a voice in this community to keep pushing for because Standardized assessments are a great tool. They are also historically very ableist and racist and classist. And so I think that's something that we have to keep in mind as well. And so depending on the situation, we might get more out of a conversation. And I don't think that that's any less 
skilled than giving a standardized assessment, if that makes any sense. But I do think it does take time to develop the skill set and the perspective, and then also to have these hard conversations with doctors and your therapy colleagues, um, because everybody's going to have a different experience, a different perspective, different goals that they're working with for this patient and within the facility and within the healthcare system. And so, Stephanie, I'm glad you said that because this is a lot. <laughs> it's a lot to consider as a new grad. And I think it does just come with experience. Yeah, it does. Because I mean, you got to think about it. It's each patient you see, you get a little bit more experience with seeing that whatever diagnosis it is, but then you're like, then you think about the person and how they reacted and what their values were. And then it kind of trains you into thinking in a glow, like a larger global mindset about your patients. So, yeah. Yep. Great. Okay, we're going to wrap up this episode of the Resource Roadmap show so you can get instant access to everything we've talked about today at therapyinsights.com. All links are available in the show notes. And if you have any questions for us, um, it can be about any resource recommendations we have, um, any particular case studies you'd like us to discuss, you can reach us at support at therapyinsights.com. If you're an Access Pass member, be sure to vote for what we create next. Um, we do listen to all of your requests and we do produce the content that you let us know that you need. And we'll have a new episode, new episode for you on June 1st. And we will see you then. Thanks, everybody. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye.